Welcome back to another episode of Fintrepreneur with Dave and Eli. Today, I'm thrilled to have my friend who I met in recent years through the Young Presidents Organization, my friend Chris. How do I pronounce your last name, Chris? Smith. (laughs) (laughs) My family also says it differently, but uh, I say Krawulik. Krawulik? Yeah, it's a Ukrainian Cossack originating name. So Cossacks used to make up these names that were kind of like a joke. And I recently found, and uh, I was on a trip to Ukraine, I visited a Cossack village, and the, the historian explained to me the roots of my name, which was pretty cool. And, and it was a joke? Well, the Cossacks would, would, because if they got caught, they didn't want to actually use their family names, so they used these made-up names, and, and that they, it ended up sticking, and they went with these funny names as their, uh, their name. <laughs> It means to curve or to trick people, so it's like, but that's, yeah, that's a short description of the meaning. Well, that's funny. How does your family say it? My dad, his first language was Ukrainian, so he says it with a Ukrainian accent, which I can't. Uh, I can't. You can't even do it. My my brother says Krivolak, so I guess we should maybe come together and solve that problem. <laughs> one of these days. That's funny. It's been great getting to know you a little bit the last few years. Look forward to doing more of that here today. You know, you've got a lot of interesting, different experiences that I know you've had over the course of your life. So why don't we just start with high level, like? You know, how did you get in business? I know you started your first company really young. You know, how did you sort of end up progressing into fintech and just give us the lay of the land? Yeah, yeah. So I have to go way back. I essentially quit school in grade five. I did, I did stay going to school, but I just said, that's it. I'm, I'm kind of done. I, don't, I didn't really fit that environment. When I finally did get out of school, my, my highest mark in grade 12 was 52. So university, you know, not liking school, university, of course, wasn't my path. And I would actually cheat to get, you know, my goal was just do enough to pass. Unfortunately, getting out of school, I'm like, I'm, I'm ready to take on the world. And I got a job where my dad worked, which uh, back in Saskatchewan, which was the steel plant. And I'm like, so excited you know you following your dad's footsteps and my dad was a farmer too but you know his main work was this factory worker and so i get there you know i want to move up i want to do well and very quickly i realized that wow this is just like school do what you're told stay in your box and i start to get depressed and i'm like well what am i going to do i you know i i don't want to go to university no this work environment doesn't seem to fit me so that's when i decided to become an entrepreneur and my goal in becoming an entrepreneur was was really just to create a culture, a place for me to survive in a better environment, a better... I used to play in the sand as a kid a lot, so a better sandbox where we could play and make stuff and have fun. And so my first business started when I was 18. And, you know, I, I, I thought, you know, let me go into something that's growing. So mobile phones were just coming out. There was, the you know, the big, big bag phones, actually, then the milk cartons came out later. And I thought, well, if I go in that industry, I'll, I'll carve a path. And so that's how I chose the industry. And uh, that business is still doing very, very well. It's back in Saskatchewan. It's now called Jump.ca. And then I guess in 99, I started IQ Metrics. And there's a, there's a story, there's an origin story to that, which I'll, I'll skip right now. But And Chris, or- what, was that, what was that original business that's now Jump.ca? Oh, it was a lot of things, including, uh, you know, internet service provider, but I started to install phones and I started to retail phones. Now it's the, the largest, I guess, retailer of, of wireless phones. And then we also still install ADSL, like high-speed internet. So it's a couple hundred people back in Saskatchewan. And uh, yeah, it's still doing well. It, it does um, two different subcategories as well. 
And so did you end up selling that business? Not quite, not quite. We do have a small equity partner in that, but no, it's still in the in the group. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So yeah, so cell phones and then I guess you you had a business that sold them and then you built a fintech that helped power others that sell cell phones. Is that pretty accurate? Not quite. <laughs> but I mean, good deduction. I'll, I'll give you that. You know, the internet came out and I was super excited about the internet. It's like, uh, you know, this is going to change everything. Of course, it was a lot slower, but uh, running software on the internet to me was very, very exciting. So I started to, you know, build an e-commerce application and then we... Um, focused on the SME market. And that really didn't go anywhere. And we had like build your own stores, basically like Shopify. And then I, I then I started to get into more um, kind of core operational business, like core traditional business. So bricks and mortar, CRM, and then started to build point of sale. And because one of my businesses was wireless, that was one of the, um, the industries that I was in. But I was originally going to be multi-vertical. And I just not having outside investors, not knowing how expensive software is, I just ended up focusing on the wireless industry. You know, now we're in many categories, but that was a bit of the the early journey was to essentially do software as a service. And and there was a there was more to that. You know, the business is called IQ Metrics because I was tracking data in my first business and I would pull it down from the different stores and then I would turn into like a visual Excel sheet and I would fax it to the stores. And I was blown away by how the measures would affect people's behaviors just by sharing information and how it actually made it more fun for them to work when they had this perspective. And I'm like, well, why isn't there business systems that have got data embedded, operational data, and these feedback loops that are alive inside the system? So that was one of the other ideas uh, in the founding of IQ Metrics. But the main idea was actually, I wanted to build a, a, an even better culture. I thought, you know, software, you can do business anywhere. Like it's, um, you know, you're not bound by geographies, you know, you, you as far as being creative, technology is changing so quickly. So I really wanted to be in that industry. And also I wanted to be in, have a business where everybody was you know, full-time, like this was their vocation. In that other business, there was a lot of transitional workers, you know, people going to university and working. And and so it was also to continue to iterate on what is the ideal culture. So after IQ Metrics, you continued on sort of building a portfolio. Did that come soon after or or did you run IQ Metrics for a while and then go from there? Like, how did that happen? Yeah, yeah. So IQ Metrics, we always innovated in um, a lot of ways. We have a lot of failed projects, but they were all under the IQ metrics banner. With one exception, we were in the healthcare space um, with about 100 clinics, which we ended up selling uh, just, just because of focus, a company called IQ Medics. Um, so we were always like ideas were always emerging. We we're building these out, but we never had a real vehicle to um, properly incubate these ideas. And so through a, after a lot of failures, we we sort of got settled on a model that worked. And we did launch this uh, was called a red stapler program. We all love the movie Office Space. And my senior team, if you've seen that movie, there's a place called Storage Room B where this guy, Milton, he's he was actually let go, but he's still on the payroll and, and uh, he <laughs> works from the storage room. <laughs> so if people have an idea, they could pitch them, pitch the idea and we fund it. And so we started to incubate companies. And the first one was Kova that was successful growing these companies. And once Kova kind of got on its feet, we formalized the structure and we have now what we call a meta company. Uh, this is before Facebook called themselves meta, but Chrysalis is the, the sort of the parent company. 
that supports the ecosystem. So we don't actually build anything inside of Chrysalis, but we help incubate companies and we reflect back to them what they're doing. So we're really like a support system for the entire ecosystem. So along the way, we have failures, but those failures actually really, they can turn into other interesting emergent opportunities. And when you say you opened it up for questions, is that internally to you know, your existing team or was this you know, sourcing deals from the outside? Yeah, it was internally at first and we would take ideas, but we recently did a small acquisition with the idea of a startup, like the startup was saying, hey, we need more sort of support, you know, not just financial, but, you know, mentoring and technology. And so we recently uh, acquired um, an HR scheduling, kind of uses AI and uh, scheduling to optimize workforce management. So we acquired this small startup and uh, they're doing actually incredibly well. The growth multiples are, are really, really impressive. They've been with us a little over a year now, and we're starting to see some really good um, growth. But but yeah, no, it's both internal and external. So we're open to both of those scenarios. Chris, you've obviously taken a lot of risks in the decades and you know a lot of experiments and some things worked, some things didn't. How did you make sure that the failures didn't, you know, weren't showstoppers? Like you've managed to keep going and keep iterating to something and how you've been bootstrapped, how you think about capital structure and capital raising. Like, what have you done to make sure that? one of these failures doesn't kind of sink the ship. Yeah, as far as capital goes, I'm, I'm just learning about capital structure. We're, we currently don't have an equity partner and uh, we are looking to to bring somebody into Chrysalis uh, as an equity partner here soon. So I'm, I am learning that whole area. I've, I've been an entrepreneur for a long time, but I'm still kind of a beginner in the, on the finance side of things. But the failures, it's really interesting. You know, the failures, when I reflect back, is where we learn the most. And uh, especially new initiatives, you know, when you have a go-to-market failure, you know, we try to bring those learnings into the organization and bring it into the collective intelligence uh, of the organization. And it's really like a regeneration. If you think of, you know, if you think of a forest that burns down, that's fertile, that creates fertile soil for new growth to come. So you really want to take advantage of the learnings and what the failure has to offer. In another example, we had a project that we typically invest about half a million before they, you know, you end up that is this going to get to the next stage? So this one made it, we spent about half a million dollars and this team had, you know, just didn't, couldn't find a product market fit. You know, they just couldn't get, get there. They were still way too far off, but that team went to join our uh, ready company and they were so well developed as a team, they were able to add significant value. So that's just one of the examples of how, you know, these failures actually can create all these, you know, benefits down the road. So we, we, yeah, we look at like regeneration is, is one of our, you know, one of the ways we look at like, how can we turn this into something useful? I guess one of the more common entrepreneurial failures is you build something, you try and take it to market and it just doesn't get the uptake that I guess would be a go-to-market failure. Like, is there a particular theme or lesson given that you've brought lots of products to market? Like, is there some commonality between the failures? in terms of, you know, things that could be done differently and better and that you've probably improved over time to like minimize the risk of that? You know, a business is, is very, very complicated, but there are some 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 patterns. But the the, the one that, uh, you know, this is going to be quite familiar, but it to iterate quickly. And when Ready first went to market, we built an app and we, we didn't spend a lot of time doing that. And nobody would download the app. And this is to pay at the table. So we like, 
how do we change this, right? So uh, we don't just keep on trying to make that better. We we will change and wait till we get our metrics, but you want to move quite quickly. But if it's an art form, it's not, there's no, um, you know, the, the, you have to rely on the science. So like, what is the, like, uh, like you have to measure and look at the data. So like this, that would be, uh, and then iterate from that data, but you also have to follow your intuition. If I were to rewind time, we ran our e-commerce product for a long time. And then, and it was really, again, it was, was quite developed we had a great like it was all browser-based you could build your store publish it and this is back in the you know early 2000s we were very evolved but then we you know we, we had to focus with limited resources and capital but you know i, I really didn't want to let that one go and so you got to follow your your gut and uh sometimes you are a little too early in the market so just like lay low <laughs> keep iterating and ready get ready for the market to strike so there's no uh it's not just science, it's a bit of an art form, but yeah, you know, I guess I could say, I could add one more point that would be very useful. And it's, you have to look inside and see like, do you really want to do this, right? Like, what do you want to do? And if you like, this really matters and you know, like you got this energy inside you to create this thing and even if the market's not ready, I would stick with that. That is really, really the source of it. And we've had startups where they would pivot a few times, but by time they found a market fit, like or you know ideas, they were like, that's not interesting to us anymore. Yeah, we could do it. We could do a lot of things, but that's not. So when that would happen, that's a failure too. Because if we don't have the founder, somebody that wants to do something, that's part of the ingredients, that's part of the alchemy of creating a company. And so if you don't have that, what's the point? And so you know some of our failures have come from you know people losing interest you know when there was a misalignment from what they started to from what the actual you know product might be have you experienced that before where you know you decide to keep at it with a certain project but the market wasn't quite ready but then over time the market did warm up and maybe it took longer but you got to where you Yeah ready to. ready is one of them ready had a very long incubation period you know longer than the normal anytime you're carving out a new category something that's you know adjacent or different than you know what consumers are used to. We knew the thing is is that we know our physical experiences are broken. To go go into a store and wait in line and have ten people in front of you those days those are not going to continue on. And those those retailers that don't address getting rid of friction in their experiences like the best the very best experience should be in a physical store or a restaurant where you can you know you, know, you have people you have products like it's got all it's got the high fidelity. But our technology really needs to just enable and make that experience better. So we know that these things are coming. So it's just a matter of when, and as humans, we're very slow to change some of our habits. I ended up in a taxi recently and the gentleman driving the taxi had an old, he had to enter in the address manually with the keypad. It took him like five minutes after that, just like he's got a smartphone that doesn't understand Google Maps yet. It takes a while sometimes for you know us to change some of our habits, but uh, it'll get there. Chris, it's so funny that you're talking about the in-store experience. I feel like every time I'm at Costco or one of the big stores with my my wife, I'm always saying, how is it that we got to take it off the shelf into the cart, put it all in the cart, get it to the cash, take it out of the cash, put it back into the thing, then bring it to your car, take it, you know, it's yeah. on and off. Why isn't this already streamlined? So I'm, I'm glad there's people thinking about actually streamlining this process. Yeah, we all have that that pain. That's where the innovation starts is at the pain. And it was actually the, the founder of Ready. He's a developer originally from Saskatchewan. He had a baby. They were waiting for the check and the baby wants to go, right? 
took a while to bring the check and then they didn't bring the machine and he's like this has got to change this is stupid that was the original situation that triggered the idea to create ready something else that you said also resonated and it was around the timing uh you know about launching something maybe being a little early you know was part of the process that you went through also some education for clients and, and potential prospects that you were working with the reason I ask is, you know, we're, you know, we're entering a space that is super exciting and also relatively new. You know, the business to business e-commerce yeah. space is is massive, but also it's about five or 10 years behind the business to consumer space. So it's kind of cool to see how things are aligning with companies just starting to think about that and us being there. But, yeah. you know, there's also this little bit of lag sometimes. And so was there part of the process for you in having a company that was maybe a little early, but you kind of stuck with it? Was a lot of it also some education with your clients is introducing yeah. these features? Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan. I mean, I think you you do advocacy. I'm not a big fan of education. You know, you don't want to be educated to, like, say, use Amazon, right? You just want to be able to fumble your way through it. If you can support a natural adoption, I'm a much bigger fan of that. Education when they ask for it, right? If, if somebody wants to to go deeper, I think on their demand, I'm okay with that. When I mentioned the healthcare space, we we were in, we moved away from that space. Not just uh, you know for we need to focus on our core business because we were we were spread a little bit too thin. But another challenge we found with that market was we we had felt that the healthcare market on information systems was quite behind. You know, we got this advanced MRI equipment, but then on the information systems side, it's like fill up this form again and again and again. And uh, it was like like at least 10 years behind, similar to what you described. But once we got in there, we saw these barriers for adoption and innovation. And we thought that this is just not a friendly environment for us because like we want to move quickly and the regulatory and the misaligned incentives really was too much politics for us. So there's there's various reasons and why you might want to, you know, move on from one thing to another. But uh, yeah, if you don't have to educate and if you can just use avocation and that to me has been far more successful. It makes a lot of sense to me. The product needs to be so good that people can just fumble into it. Even if at the beginning, I mean, there is sort of like, it's really more marketing, but you need to educate people on the value proposition. But as uh, that becomes more evident over time and then FOMO kicks in and everyone starts sacked at once and so on. So Chris, a lot a lot of companies will talk about culture, but it seems like with you, it's, uh, it is truly a focus. Uh, you know, even early in our conversation, you talked about how culture is pivotal to you. So, you know, what is your approach towards culture and what, why is that so important? Yeah, I mean, culture's a, it's why I started the business was really just to create a, a place for me to survive in. But, you know, like, what is the point of business? Like, why? Uh, I think that's a really good question. But like, for me, it really was just that, you know, I wanted to have a place where we can learn together, where we could build connections, where we could make life better for ourselves, but also for the next generation. And yeah, when I, when I reflect back to, you know, on purpose, I, I read this, uh, uh, this book, Start With Why. I think most people are familiar with Simon Sinek. And, you know, he has his little workbook to you know, find your purpose. And I, I didn't really think about that deeply before that. But when I reflect back, I realized that, oh, I'd like to create these containers for these experiments to happen where people actually grow and, and transform. It was easy to look back because I would just like look at all the things that I did. And, and we do these um, great company trips where we get everybody together. And, and I just love being the center of that or in the design of our 
you know, the offices are, that world is changing, but how we would, how our offices were designed, you know, I just want to be in the center of all these different containers. Yeah. And culture is something that, you know, it's shifting right now with uh, so much work from home, what we render to the digital realm versus what we render to the physical realm. We need to come back and figure this out. There's no doubt that we've gotten very good at the digital realm. There's, there's a lot more advancements there, but we have to learn the physical realm. Like what things do we take to the physical realm? Then how do we do that? We haven't solved that. I haven't seen anybody that's figured that out yet, but that's a really important part of culture is the um, all of the offline connections. And, 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 and the reason why is culture's relationships. It's the strength of the bonds that are formed and a lot of these ideas, you know, shared the ready story, but he came back and he started to talk to coworkers and they gave him some feedback and then some other people, hey, I'm interested in this. So some other people came around. That happened because of physical relationships and we're missing that. So culture right now is definitely in a, in a bit of a disruptive space because, um, you know, we have to figure out how to best, best come back together. But I, I do think it's going to get, ultimately, it's going to be in a great place because we will you know, we will learn to better mix those two realms. But yeah, imagine if your future existence was in your home on Zoom your whole life. Could you imagine that if you couldn't, uh, <laughs> you know, didn't have in-person connections? So yeah, so it's been very important. I'd say it's like really transforming right now and really interested to see where this is going to go. I wanted to ask, what's the idea about entrepreneur? Who came up with the name idea? I think that was Sean, or VP Marketing. <laughs> Pretty fintech and entrepreneurship. No, I've been, I uh, there you go. <laughs> reason I, I ask, I've been writing a book for about too long. It's not done. I really <laughs> want to try to get it done this year. And with ChatGPT, I'm, I'm, I'm a better chance. But it's called Quantrepreneur. So I'm running it with a physicist. And it's applying principles from quantum mechanics to entrepreneurship. So I, was, um, I got into physics... Uh, uh, many, many years ago, I read this book from Carl Jung called Synchronicity. And uh, uh, he was looking, and uh, if, if you don't know what synchronicity means, um, it's when you have these, uh, he, he described it as an a-causal connecting principle. It's when you have these coincidences that have meaning. So, you know, you're driving down the road, you think of somebody, and there's no reason for you to think of them at that time, but then they call you. That's like, and it has some significance in what you're doing. And so I was... Uh, having those in my life and i'm like i didn't even know what they were i read his book and, and and he was working with this physicist named wolfgang Pauli on a on a framework so i started to go to quantum mechanics conferences to understand quantum mechanics and uh, i befriended this uh, physicist named uh, manas kafatos he's uh, he's written a lot of books in his he's in his, in his uh, later 70s now and uh, we became close friends and uh, we were collaborating on both classical laws, like Newtonian laws, and and we're we're having a glass of wine at this conference. And yeah, I mean, he, we were discussing how much of business is actually designed from classical principles, you know, cause and effect, how we use incentives to get things done, on and on and on. And when uh, you know, I was describing some of the things that we did and how we structured our business, which is a little bit more organic, you know, not trying to be more deterministic on things, but coming from a deeper set of principles. He had this insight where it says like, well, you guys are more aligned with how you run your business with quantum principles rather than classical principles. So it was it was his idea to write this book called Quantrepreneur. But um, I'm not a writer, which I figured out pretty, pretty quick. But it's been a really fun journey. And actually, 
you know, I think I've been figuring it out more over the last couple of years, but um, quick digression from our Finchpreneur. No, that's great. No, it's fascinating stuff. That's why I love chatting with you, Chris, is like you have a diverse range of perspectives. That's uh, quite unique for somewhere in business. Speaking of, uh, of that and, uh, you know, fascinating experiences in the physical realm, I, I feel compelled to ask you about your incredible pyramid. <laughs> Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I was leaving Burning Man. And uh, for those of you who don't know Burning Man, it's this um, community, the self-organized community that gets together every year for a week. And it's um, an incredible type of world to visit. Yeah, so I started going about 13 or 14 years ago, I guess long with, I got to add this COVID years onto things about 15 years ago, right? Anyway, I was leaving Burning Man in 2015, having brought people and I bring more people. And the very first time I was like, wow, like this isn't a party. You come here to work in yourself. Like you become better humans by going here. And uh, yeah, I was leaving Burning Man in 2015 and had this idea to build this camp. And I, I didn't know why but it's like build a pyramid and so this the make it this definition of uh, the specification of giza so the the camp uh, we we had our first year in 2017 but it's very in line with my purpose like i like to create containers or community where people transform so the camp is called Playa Alchemist, which is, uh, alchemy is an ancient science of transformation. And so we make a, a more tighter container where we have talks and events and immersive experiences and parties. Parties are one of the best places to transform when you can like let yourself go and connect and converse. And so it's been really, really fun. And I also have learned, uh, you know, our business, we use, we develop our own operating system of how do we organize? How do we collaborate? How do we make decisions? and distributed authority work. And so we developed our own operating system, but I've learned a lot from Burning Man because Burning Man, when we, we have to build this in, this project, that's an insane amount of work and we, don't, we have not enough time to do it. So how do we organize at scale? How do we collaborate at scale to do all this work together and make this very complicated camp function and have an incredible amount of fun at the same time? And so I've been able to learn a lot from that experiment like it would validate a lot of things and what we would, you know, bring in the, the default world. But yeah, it's been a great place for me to experiment with many new uh, new ideas and challenges. Chris, you're, um, you know, strike me as, as quite a, a humble guy, but, you know, the, the results of these things are pretty phenomenal. I mean, that, first of all, that pyramid, how long does that take to build? <laughs> it should take a couple of weeks, but we we build it now and like we design this thing on a computer. So you gotta remember this isn't something, you know, I didn't go to Amazon, like, yeah, hey, I need a pyramid, excuse the specification. <laughs> we had all the parts manufactured, and when we put it together, it never had gone together the very first year. And it's uh, it's a little tricky, labor intensive, tens of thousands of bolts alone. It's over ten thousand. I don't know, I don't remember the exact number, but it's an insane amount of work. But somehow we uh we pull it off. It took three years to have the camp to like what the original vision was just to, you know, build all the pieces, but it's a machine now. And then in terms of the businesses, give us some idea of like scale of, you know, the group, like how many people do you have working on these various projects and you know, that sort of thing? Our numbers like in the five to 600 for, for Chrysalis, five to 600 people in that range. I don't remember the exact number. The uh, the largest company is IQ Metrics as, uh, the, uh, you know, and it, 
And it has the largest GMV too. I think it's about 16 or $18 billion of GMV in that business. So it's a really, uh, there's a lot of um, a lot of transactions that we do in that business. And uh, the next one is Kova, which is a seat to sale cannabis platform. So we're the, the we've recently kind of moved into, we've always were dominating Canada, but uh, moving to a leading position in the US there as well. The uh, next company's Ready, which is really a, it started as pay at the table, but now you can order and pay and we're in stadiums and hotels. So you can order to your seats in hotels, you know, order to the room. And if you're in a cabana, order to your cabana. All So really trying to create or take out friction from all those uh, transactional experiences. And uh, ShipLab, which I mentioned, is the AI scheduling. And we have a new one that we're incubating, which is called Scale. And uh, this is software we actually use internally. Like, how do we collaborate at scale? And so, how can we bring software that'll help other companies scale and collaborate in the digital realm in a way where they can build coherence with their with their teams? And especially as companies get bigger, you know, you can you can scale. There's this funny scaling laws, like you know, small teams, like in person, you know, you could probably. You know, like a hundred people is usually not a problem, but digital, I think, is creating some challenges or or complexity. And but certainly, as you get like more than fifty, you start to run into challenges and in keeping, you know, processing tensions with people and just getting coherence as a group. So technology can really help that a lot. So uh, that'll be a product that may hit the market in the next year or so. Chris, so I mean, there's a lot of different things going on there. And you mentioned earlier, you've experienced being spread too thin before in a business yeah. and was part of your decision in selling one of them. And so what's allowed you to branch out in such spectacular ways as of late? Is it really because you're just bringing in these founders to run with it? And, and that's why you can be in so many places at once? Or Yeah, it's really self-managing. And, and in a similar way, it allows this camp to build. So we have a series of principles at the very root in which we operate. And um, I'll maybe highlight two, because they these principles, they developed organically. And so we really just identified and documented what they are. The first one's purpose-driven. So purpose is like just the the energy, like, why am I doing this, right? You ask that question. So everything needs to be rooted in, in purpose. But driven, the core thing that that represents is that's where we get our energy from. When we can connect on purpose, you know, we get our energy to drive. So so if you don't, you know, care about the purpose, it's going to, you know, you're going to have challenges with following that purpose, right? The second principle I'll share is agency and ownership. Again, these principles, they live in a duplicity. So there's a relationship, agency and ownership, agency is the ability to make a choice. So for self-management to work, you know, the companies, they have full autonomy over what they do. So they have the agency. We have financial boundaries, but they have full agency. But they also, if you're going to have that ability to spend money, you also have to own the responsibility. So this is, again, across the organization. Yeah, you can make a choice, but guess what? You own that choice. You know, there's all kinds of people with ideas. Hey, you should do this. You should do this. Or I have this idea. But if there's nobody to do it, yeah, I mean, if you're going to do it, great. <laughs> or if, if somebody else wants to do it, great. If they, you know, if it ties to their purpose, then it's something they want to do. But that's how distributed self-management works is that people have to take that responsibility and ownership for the choices that they make. When they do that, as things never work out how you want, they also will adapt and do the things to keep that going in whatever direction it needs to go versus management has to watch and you know then all of that traditional management just doesn't work and so you can't scale that 
you know, very wide. You have to keep your your business fairly simple and use incentives, which is no fun for anybody. I don't think only the few people. Chris, thanks again for being with us today. I I know you, you've known Dave for a little while, but this has been really fascinating for me. Dave told me it was going to be good, but uh, I'm glad that we got the, the opportunity to do this. Uh, we normally finish off with one sort of broad question and about, you know, if you're 10 years from now, you're looking back, we normally ask it specific to the person's industry, but you're across a bunch of industries. So to just, just in general in business, I guess, if you look back 10 years from now, what, what do you hope to see has happened? I'm really interested in, in collaboration and collaborating at scale, solving problems. For me, I've been tracking our ability to do that at scale, but I, I feel like if we can solve collaborating at scale in a greater way, I would love to have not only have, like you never solve that, but have make some significant investment. How do we actually organize and work through challenges? A big win for me is to share something to the world that would be of use to other organizations and other groups. Because if with the problems we have in the world today, if we don't collaborate and work together, we're just not going to solve them. It's going to lead to other problems. So this is for me one of the important issues of the world today yeah that's what i'd i'd like to have some progress on fascinating conversation chris thank you so much for spending the time with us today yeah awesome it was fun yeah take care and yeah. until next time this Absolutely. was venture